Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming. It has been said many times, mostly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games to be played out there right now. We, you could be spending your hobby time or your hobby dollars on, and it's hard to know, you know what to play next. It leads to a serious feeling of you know, fear of missing out, I think is what the kids call it. Uh, that's at least what the students in my room told me this week. Um, but uh, it's, I guess that's the purpose of this podcast, to really just talk about, you know, some of the games that my guests and I are playing, uh, industry events that are happening, uh, you know, in the gaming industry, and you know, local or international tournaments or events that uh, people are playing in, and, you know, just talking shop, having a good time. Now, this podcast is, you know, it's largely come about because of um, my love of gaming. And my love of gaming, though it started in, you know, fairly weird places, um, actually probably fairly boring places with Car Wars and Battletech and D&D and all those games back in the 80s, um, there was this weird loophole. It was like a, a black hole that I stepped in and got sucked into in the very late 90s and early, sorry, late 80s and early 90s. And I sort of fell into a gaming vortex that sort of took over my life and became my profession and eventually led to me living in Australia. And that was a game called Warhammer 40,000. Now, we're not going to talk about that per se, but we're going to talk to the man who basically wrote it. The man whose name is on so many books on my shelf, I don't know where to begin. The godfather of modern wargaming himself, the big poobah of gaming. It is my intense pleasure to welcome Rick Priestley to Cast Dice. Rick, welcome. Uh, hi, hi, Brad. I, I'm really looking forward to meeting this uh, this person you describe. He sounds really interesting and not at all like me. Ah, <laughs> oh, Rick, come on. You know that you are a big deal. All humble, all humility aside, um, it is uh, truly an honor to have you on the show today. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Um, and I know we're going to talk about probably Warlords of Erewhon for a good chunk of this episode, it being a game that I absolutely love and a game that you've recently written. Um, but Rick, before we get into, you know, what you've been doing professionally, um, what have you been doing hobby-wise? I mean, I know when we play your games, um, I, you know, as a kid, I sometimes wondered, I wonder what Rick plays. Uh, so Rick, what are you playing? Um, well, when you say hobby-wise, you see, I mean, my hobby is really creating games. <laughs> so there you go. There's no, there's no, um, there's no distinction, and and I'm sort of retired anyway. So uh, the, the, what I, what I do with Warlord, or what I do with Lucidi, or uh, Wargames Illustrated, or any any of these other um, people that I, I do bits of work for, uh, uh, like Guy Bowers of Wargames um, Soldier and Strategy. I mean, they're all just people. They're all people I know. So to, to a mm. large extent, they're all mates. And um, I, I don't, I don't do real work. I, I just, uh, I just mess around. <laughs> well, I like the the uh, the way you mess around, sir. And if I was to say if what you're doing now is retired, yeah, that's that's pretty impressive. Um, yeah, I I, I, take, I decided that from uh, from now on, I was pretty much going to take the attitude that I was retired. I was um, I was I turned sixty in March, 
Um, and uh, I th- my wife's retired as well. She retired last year. So it just seemed unnecessary to continue trying to actively um, uh, uh, work. So uh, it, a certain amount of work comes along as part of what I, as my gaming, you know, it just does. People ask me to write articles or um, uh, they ask me to, if not write supplements or books, then help out with supplements or books. So there's a little bit of actual work that I, 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 I either bill people for or don't, depending on whether they owe me a curry or not. Um, <laughs> right uh, on. <laughs> but that, but that's it really yeah no it's, and, and i think um it's actually healthier because um one thing i'd say is that if a company and let's say warlord games because warlord are, are pretty well organized they, mm. they have um it might not seem that way sometimes i know <laughs> but um they have schedules and they try and work to them and they don't always succeed but they do try and work to them and they plan ahead so they'll say oh we we want a supplement for let's say hail caesar for july 2020 Mm-hmm. And you go, oh, do you? <laughs> yeah. What, should, what am I supposed to do about that? Yeah. Um, and they go, would you like to write it? And I'm thinking, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. I wake up one morning and think, do you know, I've, I saw something last night or I read something last night or, you know, I've, I've, I've been to working my way into, say, the first century AD wars of such and such. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I want to do. And I want to do it now. And Warlord will turn around to me and go, no, no, we don't want it now. We want something for um, 2020. And we've talked to the sales guys, and they're not really interested in a Pothian supplement or whatever. And I'm thinking, well, then, mm-hmm. <laughs> why, why talk to me? <laughs> it, it, if you can't marry the enthusiasm with the product, then you're working in a vacuum. You know, if, yeah. if it's not fun to do and you don't want to do it, you're not inspired to do it, then why do it? Yeah. Uh, you know, just to hit a schedule, and it was like that at Games Workshop. It was it, 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 everything was schedule driven, and it just saps creativity out of a product. It saps enthusiasm out of it, and it means you can't work as a team yeah. because, you know, when you have a group, when you're a bunch of mates and you tend to experience things together, you often want to do things together, and you really enjoy something. Like um, I've been playing in uh, various campaigns around with the Perrys, including. Um, uh, Wars of the Roses campaigns in particular, we're using the Hail Caesar rules. Nice. And um, yeah, I, I, but the guys are all enthused about it. So Alan Perry uh, or, or Mike Perry, I think in this particular case, um, came up with the rules for the campaign. So the campaign rules have been done by Mike. Um, together they've painted or had painted whole armies of models, which are beautiful. Mm-hmm. They both take photographs of a fantastic standard you might have seen them on uh, the perry miniatures facebook page oh yeah uh, and, and i sometimes sh- and i share them usually if i if i'm involved um and they're just beautiful they they really have an eye for photographs and they have an eye for the terrain and it, it just it just they're, they're just something special and it inspires you to want to write that supplement so you pull all these things together you've got the photos you've got the game rules that have been done by someone else and can be polished up you've got the experience of actually having done it so the rules have been played into existence not created abstractly mm-hmm. and then play tested by some remote um, group of people you've no idea who they are which is often what happens professionally mm-hmm. um, so the natural enthusiasm creates the product and I think you get a different kind of game Agreed. Phew, lecture over. Well, that actually brings me to my next question is, 
I got the feeling as a child, having read some of the early, you know, maybe Warhammer Fantasy 3rd Edition, Warhammer 40K 1st Edition, Rogue Trader, back in the day, um, that there seemed to be a, a lot more of that enthusiasm and energy and chaos almost um, in yes. in the studio. And was that um, was that kind of what you're describing now? Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't necessarily top to bottom in the studio. You know, mm. there were uh, and there were different cells and groups of people. But I would say, yeah, I mean, the 40K for sure. That absolutely. It was, play, it was played into existence. And um, I mean, large, largely driven by me, I think, at the time. But I was organizing games and we were playing games of proto 40K on our living room floor in the house I shared with two of the other guys who worked at Games Workshop, so, mm-hmm. um, well, uh, who weren't actually in the studio. Um, so there was a sort of um, a, a collective enthusiasm for it, even early on. Um, and then when we started to take the, uh, uh, the ideas and everything into a studio environment, it very quickly got picked up on by um, everyone else. Uh, I, th- I think it was quite, I think that dystopia, that, that dystopia uh, and the sense of humour mm-hmm. was fairly common to to us all at the time. Um, it was something that I think we all picked up on, and it, you see a lot of it in 2000 AD. I, I often point out uh, to people that I actually did the original Judge Dread role playing game immediately before I did Rogue Trader. Did you? Uh, I didn't yeah, know that. The, yeah, uh, me and well, I say it was me and Mark Gascoigne, but I actually did it as a project handed it over, and then Mark Gascoigne um, edited and um, re, re-jigged some of it. Uh, I'd written it with a D6 system because um, Brian Ansell very, suggested I did that. Mm-hmm. But when I, it, but actually, it was a commission for Games Workshop rather than Citadel. So um, when it arrived at, um, uh, as a manuscript at Games Workshop, they weren't happy with it being a D6 system. Which you thought they might have told me to start with, actually, but uh, the, <laughs> yes. in, but they didn't. So, um, so Mark Gascoigne basically translated it into a more what was then fashionable D, I think it's D one hundred system or D ten mm. system, um, the the basic combat system. Uh, so, to, so we we have joint authorship on it, but really, I, I wrote it and then he edited and revised it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we didn't work on it together at any point. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. It's it's almost the reverse of what's happened recently with you having worked on, um, you know, 40K and Fantasy Battle for so many years that was, of course, those were D6 systems. And now you've gone yeah. D10, of course, with Warlords of Erewhon and um, Gates of Antare. So it is, uh, it is a, a circular ending. Uh, I guess, well, an ending sounds grim. Jeez. Ooh, bad segue. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, well, it, it's come full circle to some extent, I suppose. I, mm. I mean, let me think. D- D10s and D100s were quite the thing in the um, mid to late 70s mm. when I was sort of, as a late teenager, uh, when I was starting to design my own games and, you know, uh, and I had a much more hands-on kind of attitude with um, games that were being played currently. So... Mm. Uh, there were there were a few skirmish systems that used D100s, in particular um, the uh, uh, skirmish war games groups, uh, old West rules. Mm. I try, try and get those right, which were written by um, 
Mike Blake, Ian Colwell, and uh, is it Ian Curtis? Somebody, not Ian Curtis, Steve Curtis. Hmm. Uh, 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 and that, that was a very influential set of rules at the time. Uh, very, very much a broken down skirmish game. So, you know, everything happening in phases, mm -hmm. so phased movement and phased actions uh, with um, a detailed action. So, you know, it, t it might take three turns to load a gun sort of thing. Uh, and then percentage-driven um, resolution systems. So, well, quite a little bit complicated, actually, and a bit yeah. slow. But, of course, this is pre-computers. Mm -hmm. So the idea of calculating a, a result, you know, a, a very direct, I'd call it a direct simulation, you know, you're, you're actually making calculation for very small actions. That sort of thing had an appeal that it doesn't have now because computers do it so much better. Yes, and I guess um, we do sort of have a, a more instant gratification mindset with our gaming in general. Um, I, yeah. I remember being uh, absolutely loving the idea of Star Trek as a, as a kid. Uh, my best friend was only allowed to watch one television show growing up, and that was Star Trek. Uh, and okay. so I would watch it with him, and I was thinking as an avid gamer at the time, God, I'd love it if this was a tabletop game. And of course, there was Starfleet Battles back then. Um, and I bought the rules, and as a kid, I read it and thought, oh, my God, you need to take a university course to figure this out. Um, and I yeah. flipped through that book, and I tried with my friends, and I had my dad, who's a university lecturer, a very clever man, try and read it, and it did not stick. And, um, yeah, I put that game aside, and I played something else. But these days, I feel like there's yeah, – uh, you could do that far more easily. Um but you wouldn't have that depth, I guess. That's it. I think most, I mean, I do get to look through and sometimes I, uh, sometimes I, I buy rules just because I'm interested in the rules themselves. Mm. Um, often old rules, to be honest, but um, I do pick things up. And uh, uh, spaceship games do tend to go two ways. They either go into the... Uh, uh, very calculation heavy, mm -hmm. or they tend to be very abstract, uh, and um, probably the, the abstract is a better a better course. Uh, it, trying to calculate vector movement and in th three dimensions is, you know, you're dealing with heavy maths. Yes, <laughs> uh, and most people are not happy doing that. Yes, uh, but you know that's the reality. If you want to do spaceship combat that's got some sort of basis in reality you're really dealing with quite serious but serious you're dealing with basic physics exactly um, uh, yeah uh, uh, and the alternative is to just not pay much attention to that and create an abstract well i mean most science fiction uh, movies do just treat it as an abstract star wars certainly does absolutely um mm, so you're almost you're almost dealing with uh, I say fighter planes, you know, it's a World War II style aerial combat, um, which is um, uh, okay. Yeah, it, it sort of works. It's getting the feel right is the important thing. It is. making Yeah, making sure the people who are playing it are having fun. If it's their level of, if it's the depth they're looking for or not, as long as they're having a good time doing it, um, a game has to find its audience, I suppose. It does, yeah. People's idea of fun is different as well. Yes. Uh, and, and 
And I see games which I think are perfectly good games or, or um, entirely successful games described, described often as being, uh, quote, for kids or, you know, for, a, for a, if the children, their audience is obviously children. Um, uh, and I think I saw a post recently where somebody was saying that about Black Powder. And I think its audience is not children. Its audience is exactly the people who um, mm-hmm. who, who created and played Black Powder, which is to say me and uh, the the Perrys and uh, Jervis Johnson and John Stellar. We were mature, quite knowledgeable gamers, um, very happy to accept the abstractions in Black Powder mm-hmm. because we wanted to play a certain sort of game. Um, you know, and I think that that, that sort of um, that sort of assumption that a, a war game is aimed at firstly a market mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than something that's actually aimed at the person that wrote it, you know, uh, all right games I want to play. Yeah. Uh, but to say pretend it's aimed at a market is, is I, think, I find it weird. It is interesting. Um, you did mention uh, uh, quite a few names there. And um, weirdly, I know quite a few of those people. And um, if I may, I would say that though those are all uh, very impressive names, uh, and you are all um, perhaps of a generation before me, um, you are all young at heart. And so I think (laughs) finding a game that is fun, uh, I think, appeals to you. I mean, as you said um, on a Warlord cast previously, Black Powder is sort of an evolution of the original Warmaster game, um, is it not? So to take a game that was fun and built on a system that has evolved over time, I guess it makes sense that, um, you know, it, it is literally built to, I, I guess you wouldn't make a game that isn't built to have fun. I guess, I don't know what I'm saying, but yeah, no, nothing. That's right. Uh, Brad, it's, uh, uh, that, young at heart might be one way of putting it. Childlike at heart might be another. <laughs> uh, I'm being nice about <laughs> it. John and I have played a lot of games. I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, I, it, John played occasionally when we we created Black Powder, and he became um, a great champion of it because um, he uh, decided he'd like to publish it. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, the the core core mechanics of it were actually developed by Jervis, and Jervis is a much broader player uh, of games in general. I mean, he plays a lot of board games. Mm. Uh, in fact, really, Jervis plays more board games than he does tabletop war games. Uh, you know, he's he's a very he's a very um, how can I put it? He, he he's a very acquisitive games designer. Mm. He will play a lot of games and he'll spot mechanics and he'll often think that's an interesting mechanic. I'll file that one away and reuse. He he's very good like that. He, mm-hmm. he can usually find something. Um, that's why he's so good to play against as a games designer because you come up with uh, you invariably come up with um, let's say a problem or an issue with uh, making something work or making it fulfill itself properly or, or whatever. And Jervis will most likely be the person that will say, oh, have you tried this? Or why don't you do that? Mm-hmm. And as soon as he says it, you'll go, oh, of course, that was the obvious yeah. thing to do, wasn't it? Because uh, mm-hmm. things always seem obvious when they're <laughs> in retrospect, you know. Um, so, um, yeah, I think we benefited a lot from that. And then I wrote Black Powder up. So to, to a large extent, the game is... Um, uh, a Warmaster derivation with a, some input and uh, development by Jervis and then some further input and development by me uh, and um, uh, with me writing it up. 
so, so it's a real, you know, it was a real collaborative effort. And an evolution over time, because, I mean, we're talking about yeah. a game system that evolved over what? 15 years? I guess so, yeah, and, and continues to do so, really. Um, we, I mean, uh, the um, Hail Caesar was obviously a development of um, Black Powder, mm-hmm. as was um, Spike and Shot, which um, S- uh, Steve Morgan wrote. Uh, so, you know, there's a, a couple of um, a couple of quite major systems. But I think the, the important thing to remember with both of, uh, well, both of my games and all three games is they're really designed for multiplayer games mm-hmm. on fairly big tables with fairly large armies. Uh, and I think people sometimes miss that point and try to treat them as if they were head-to-head games played between two people on a six-by-four where they really fall apart in a timed uh, environment with a judge and you know in a scoring oh, gosh, system yeah, you and you you gotta gotta put everyone and say who's the best yeah well and also points values yes and i go points values oh please come back <laughs> they they really don't I, I did do a points value system for hail caesar because i think ancient war games tend to need it there's such a strong tradition of army list choice mm-hmm. and points values within uh, the ancient wargaming community. Either trying to book that trend is almost a waste of time. <laughs> but I never use them. Never mm-hmm. use points values in Hail Caesar. Uh, it's, just, it's just not the way I play games. Yeah, for example, I never uh, never even play uh, my new Erewhon war, uh, game with, with points values. It's something that um, I don't habitually do. Um so uh, although I've got a points value system there, and, and I'd obviously you can't, I have worked out points based armies to play uh, uh, all the people who want to do the same. Mm-hmm. But on the whole, I, what I like to do is create a scenario or a story for the game um, that will you know, have objectives, it'll have places, it'll have troops coming in from different directions at different mm-hmm. times. It might have third-party people you know, wandering about or elements that are completely out of the players, any of the players' control. Um, and and create a little almost like a role playing scenario, and I I do that with uh, with the ancients games and the Napoleonic games as well. I mean, that's how the Perry's organise their war games actually. Um, and in that kind of environment, points value is just they're neither here nor there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was going to say you definitely have a points value system for Erewhon because I've been um, embarrassingly uh, I probably shouldn't admit this, but I've been reverse engineering it to uh, to to come up with a few of my own lists. But uh, no, there's definite <laughs> there's definite math in there, Rick, and it makes perfect sense. So uh, you may not be using it, but it's a it's a good system. Uh, well, I've a lot of experience at doing points value systems, yeah. so um, uh, it wasn't it wasn't that hard. There are a few there are a few bits in Erewhon where I think I've underpointed or overpointed things a little bit, and um, I I did revise some of the points values recently because um, uh, some of the pl- some, some players pointed out that there were uh, uh, a couple of uh, slightly um, poor calculations, particularly with flyers, uh, and and I just. Mm. I just upped the points value, I just added an abstract uh, for those. Uh, and in a few of the cases, what happens was Warlord Games published all the army lists as part of the game, which I hadn't really intended, yes. and then gave me no time to check them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, swines that they are. Uh, How uh, dare and, they? Uh, yeah, I know. Um, and arguably, I should have checked them before I sent them over. 
but I, did, I wasn't aware at the time of what army lists were going in the book and which ones weren't. So I thought, I'll tell you what, I'll check all the points values when it's all finished. Mm-hmm. Yeah, naive of me, really. Uh, so uh, so I've had to do quite a bit of t- uh, and tailing on the points, mm-hmm. which is all on my website. Um, uh, it's also on the Warlord Games website, but um, the difference is I intend to keep mine up to date. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, whether Warlord will or not, I don't know. They they they're very, they tend to be very busy. Yes. Invariably, they've got you know a dozen game systems to look after, and they'll be most enthusiastic about whichever one they're currently trying to push or market, which will never be Error One because they don't do fantasy figures. So. Um, mm. You know, it'll always go to the bottom of the pile well, when as, it comes to um, updating. Well, as host of the Warlord podcast, let me tell you, I don't know what you're talking about there, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that said, um, let's. I think that is a perfect opportunity to talk about your website. Um, and I'm super happy. I mean, you, you, you mentioned earlier that you're retired. And yet in the last couple of weeks, we've gotten an updated army list for every army in Erewhon, in the Erewhon rule set. We've got an FAQ um, updating a couple of the rules. I mean, it's only a couple pages because it didn't need a lot of updating, but there's some, you know, important clarifications in there. And you've put out two entire new army lists, the Lizardman slash Snakeman list and the Samurai list. So for a man who's retired, Rick, I don't know where you're getting the time to do this because that's uh, well, another, well, like an updated 11 well, list. because I'm retired. Well, yeah, there you go. But, but none of those things earn me anything. They're, they're all done as a hobbyist. Mm. You, you know, I've not done those in any professional capacity. There's no, you know, I, I, they've just, I've done them because I wanted to do them. So mm. that's what I mean when I say retired. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've done things I wanted to do rather than things which were normally going to earn me a living. Yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, no matter how modest. Uh, so, um, uh, in that sense, he, being retired gives me more opportunity to do things which are my hobby. The thing it doesn't do is, is turn into print. You see, all mm. those things are online. True. Uh, uh so, I, uh, I've got. I could print stuff. Like, I did think of printing everyone myself uh, at one time, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it, you get into that thing where you you then become a business. Yes, because you've then got a whole. You know, got a garage. You've got a garage full of, um, of printed books. When when we did WAB, you know, Warhammer Ancient Battles, mm-hmm. that was a little project that me and Jervis and to some extent the twins um, uh, wanted to do because at the time. We, we, we were very enthusiastic about the new version of Warhammer that we'd created, which was the 1992 one. And we, we thought this would make a great ancient war game. Um, and, and we basically worked at it, and Jervis and I uh, worked, worked the rules up, and I had um, uh, uh, someone at Games Workshop do all the production on it. I commissioned and paid for the artwork. You know, So it was a personal project. And when it came to actually printing it, we we took it to Games Workshop and said, yeah, we'd really like to just do that. Is it okay? And they basically said, well, no, because <laughs> it's Warhammer. <laughs> so Games Workshop insisted on creating a company that was partly, uh, mostly owned by Games Workshop. But, you know, it was, we, uh, I think uh, Jervis and uh, the Perrys had a minor shareholding. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could only be sold through that company. So we had to create a whole organization that then had to report to Games Workshop and it had to report to Games Workshop's accounting standards. And Games Workshop was a, a PLC, you know, a publicly oh, yeah. listed company. Uh, 
So its accounting standards were phenomenally complex. Mm-hmm. And in the end, we had, the money that we made out of Warhammer historical battles, or, or the whole everything we did, was less than the um, than the charge that Games Workshop made for the accountant. <laughs> wow! So all of the business that was transacted, uh, you know, we we made. If it had been an independent company, we'd have been quite good. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. because it had to then pay tens of thousands of pounds simply to have the books done for Games Workshop so that it could report to Games Workshop Group as one of its businesses, Mm -hmm. just made it stupidly impractical. Uh, And in the end, that's why they gave it. I mean, obviously... Those of us who were uh, 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 who, who who were seen as being um, indulged by uh, Warhammer Ancient Battles, mm-hmm. uh, Warhammer Ancients, and then Warhammer Historical, in fact, um, y- y- you know, gradually sort of left the business or whatever. So it, it, they they went and they wound it up, but it's a great shame. Uh, you get the the feeling of thinking of the Imperium from ancient 40k days. Um... I mean, Games Workshop really did become the bureaucracy that uh, really uh, did not necessarily um, foster the creativity that um, sort of oh, well, bore its so original it, it, fruits. That's right, but it didn't need to be creative at that point. No, um, you know, companies they go, they grow and they they change, and um, their needs change, and things that you could do as a a small company and uh, you know as, as an individual where everyone knows everyone. Uh, are different from th- when you've then got responsibility for a company that's turning over, well, at that time, tens of millions of pounds. Exactly. Um, uh, now, now hundreds, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and you're employing you know, thousands of staff actually, all all of whom need paying, and um, you have a responsibility to the business that goes above and beyond your responsibility as a creative um, designer. So it's it's a so it was a strange time, but um, so as I say, really, you, you, being free of those kind of commercial constraints means I can just do stuff. But I, I, I don't want to dive back into that world and put constraints on myself. Yes, <laughs> I think I think it would be a mistake. Uh, but the reason I, I mentioned where I'm historical is because when we first did it, the condition from Games Workshop was that the um, the the books um, didn't um, trouble their warehouse. So, really? Uh, uh, yeah. So the first 3,000 copies of Warhammer Ancient Battles were delivered by this massive truck from the printers. I mean, this thing's the size of, you know, mm. you know, these great, well, oh, you, yeah. you're in America, obviously, so you're doing a bit, uh, you're in Australia, but you, yeah. in England, you know, they, these great 30 tonners go down the motorways and they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're fast things. One of these turned up in my, uh, outside my house. I live on a country lane. <laughs> oh. uh, and it's and it's blind as well. You can't go. You, 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 if you go to the bottom, you, you, there's a farm, but you can't turn around easily. Um, and uh, and they and they came with, with palletized copies of this game. So oh. thinking I'd got a forklift truck at my house, you know, which I don't. <laughs> so we had to climb on board this truck and break down the pallet into um, boxes, oh. which we then had to carry into my garage. Well. I, my garage is, is, is accessed via the – it's either via a neighbor's house because I share access with a neighbor quite mm-hmm. – uh, it, where I live like a converted farm building. 
And we actually ended up carrying them through the house. So me and I think both Perrys that had arrived to look after this. Uh, one of the Perrys has only got one arm, of course. Mm-hmm. And we had to carry 3,000 books and stack them into my garage. <laughs> and I don't want to have to do that again. <laughs> no. No, not at all. Yeah. In in the end, we persuaded Games Workshop to find some space in their mail order department, uh, which they did. And then their mail order department took care of the dispatch. But for a long mm-hmm. time, either myself or Jervis actually fulfilled all the orders directly. So we went down into the mail order department, put our books in boxes and sent them out and just put them through the, you know, put them into the post in, in essence. And then the Games Workshop mail order system posted it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually we managed to persuade them to take it. It was, it was quite, you know, it, it was, they did everything in, they, they put every obstacle in, in our way to doing it. Uh, yep. So I've got quite a lot of experience of actually doing that hands-on stuff. Well, I got my copy through, I think, U.S. mail order who ordered it in bulk the, the little form came around and a gentleman came to our desks at Games Workshop and said, would you like to buy Warhammer Fantasy, you know, uh, Ancient Battles? Would you like to? And I said, yes, I would like to. And so they took the, they took my money and a couple weeks later, a box showed up and we were emailed that you're on your lunch break. You can come to the warehouse and we'll hand you one. And, um, yeah. you know, I went out yeah, and got yeah. my well, copy and it was it. great. Yeah. We see that sort of like circumvents the system, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> it's a, I think people just found ways of circumventing the system, and that was uh, yeah. And the staff, for sure. You know, a lot of our staff enjoyed it. Yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, I was I was really pleased with it. I thought it was a um, at the time I thought it was a really positive contribution to the war games world and to ancient wargaming. Yeah. Well, it was my first ancients game. Uh, it was the first game that I ever played that wasn't. Uh, I you know I played all those other games previously that I mentioned earlier in the episode, but um, once I mean the first ever proper miniature game I ever played was Warhammer Forty Thousand, and so I was playing Warhammer Fantasy and Warhammer Forty K for years. Um, but uh, for someone who's I, I guess a lot of people associate me with um, you know certain certain game systems, one of them being Bolt Action, which is World War Two. The very first game I ever played. Um, that was historical was that. And um, I thought it was the, uh, the perfect bridge from uh, my passion <laughs> at the time of Warhammer to uh, what became my passion later in life. So, yeah, that was an awesome system. Well, well it was the same. It was essentially the same game system, wasn't it? The early Warhammer yes. um, sort of morphed into um, uh, fourth edition, which was mm-hmm. a stripped back. I say stripped back. It, it was more focused on being a battle game than a, than, than a skirmish. The original Warhammer was yes. set up as a skirmish war game, really. Yeah, and um, it was it was that system that uh, uh, Jervis and I were very, um, you know, we felt had had legs. Mm. Yeah. And for a long time, game. I mean, Warhammer was just evolutions of that. I mean, to a degree, up until Age of Sigmar. Um, up through 8th edition of Fantasy, it was still flavors of that. I mean, 8th edition, everyone said it was such a big departure, but if you really looked at the core mechanics, a lot of that game was still there. Uh, it wasn't until the Warhammer world ended that, sadly, Warhammer did end. Um, yeah. did, did I ever ask you, Rick, what were your... I mean, you were such an integral part of the creation of that universe, um, and you were part of the the team that... 
made it what it was. Um, how was that for you to watch sort of Warhammer die? Um, well, I kind of, but I, they, I, I wasn't aware that um, Age of Sigmar was either in development or uh, even mooted when I left. Mm. Uh, um, I think it, I think they probably decided to do it for about that time or just after. I was I was surprised because um, mm. I thought that the Warhammer world was something that um, uh, had a lot of uh, character and was very mm. very positive about. Uh, it, it did yeah disappointed, but on the other hand, you know, it it it, it was time for a change in the fantasy environment. Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't have done that. In in fact, um, bizarrely they. My last job at Games Workshop was a bit strange because I was asked to do one thing, tried to do it, and then as I was doing it, I think it morphed into another. So the job I did, it became politically kind of kicked about. Ooh. But what um, what uh, the, the then CEO asked me to do was completely give Warhammer a, a, a representation in terms of its background. Not in terms of the game. Oh, that's weird. In terms of its background story. Mm. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I can, I can do that. So uh, by taking it forward, by uh, mm -hmm. taking it forward. So I did a bit of thinking about it and I did a complete, um, uh, I basically wrote a, wrote a, a future, a kind of, this is, um, this is what happens in the Warhammer world book, which was largely background but which returned to a lot of the ideas that were in the original role-playing book. Mm -hmm. And the premise was that the world of the Warhammer world, as it had been presented for the last 20 years, since the 1990s was kind of an angle on it. But the reality was that there was a lot more going on under the surface, in particular, the, um, the very black and white nature of, uh, the, the Warhammer world as it had become. Mm -hmm. So, Empire, good guys, sort of thing. Yes, was something and chaos, bad guys, if you like, mm -hmm. was actually in many ways not correct. That they're both shades of grey, and um, that uh, I, I, I intended to rewrite it such that it was clear that chaos was always at the heart of the empire. Um, uh, and, and I wrote a story which was going to basically take. Um, uh, the, the 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 chaos gods as its premise as always you know this is this is the inevitable backstory for the end of the Warhammer world mm -hmm. and the, the and the chaos gods unleash their fury upon the world and it is remade but in the process it is revealed that a lot of the conventional armies that you thought of as being opposed or or not not at all involved with chaos were but tools of chaos um, and uh, that. That that then gives you the opportunity to completely rewrite the the world background or mm. to completely represent it, um, both both in terms of physically changing the world if you want and in terms of uh, changing all the factions, but without destroying the Warhammer world but evolving it. Uh, and that's kind of what I tried to do. And I, I wrote the first book, um, but um, along the process, the idea of destroying the Warhammer world became so politically sensitive. Go, no, we can't do that. We can't. Ironic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's that. very we ironic. Can't do that. 
I know, because it's exactly then what they did. But mm-hmm. they did it in a ham-fisted, clunky, stupid fashion, rather than a, what I thought was rather an elegant solution, mm. which I've, I've described rather blandly, to be honest. It was, it, it was much more uh, uh, characterful than that. And the first book was called um, uh, uh, Tamakorn, um, uh, the book of Tamakorn, the Defiler. Uh, when I left, that book basically got rewritten and the models that I developed for it rather with very, very few resources, which is quite annoying, really. Um, but the models I got, I, I did develop for it, it got kind of repurposed. So there is a book called Tamakon, which um, I own, yes. did get, get released. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's an awful lot to do with the book I wrote. It doesn't yeah. sound anything like the book you're describing, the book um, that I own. And yes, uh, I bought it because it has Chaos Dwarves. And I was always, uh, it was always one of my favorite armies, even though it was always sort of the redheaded stepchild of uh, Games Workshop, amongst a few other, you know, armies. Yeah, well, uh, the um, the Chaos Dwarves play a huge part in the backstory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um... They, uh, oh, of your yeah, story, yeah, they, oh, right on, yeah, it, yeah, the original backstory for um, uh, for, for Tamakon. Um, but I think they, I, I, I think it just got re, I think it just got completely repurposed. I don't, I don't even know what they used of mine. I have a copy of the book, I've never taken it out of its cellophane. <laughs> I couldn't bear to do it because, mm. because it was a, it was a big, chunky book, and I spent a long time writing it. And it's got some very, it's got some nice writing in it. Mm. Um, uh, it's it's uh, slightly go back to that sort of Lord Lord Dunsany kind of style as I sometimes used. Mm. Uh, yeah, a little bit over, you know, kind of over. It's very fl- quite florid. Mm. Um, but uh, 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 see, see, my original, the um, uh, the, the 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 son of um, I don't know if this ever came through, the, but the, the the son of the em- uh, of Carl Franz, the, mm. you know, the emperor. Mm-hmm. Is revealed as being a um, uh, half demon. Oh, uh, who, was, who was captured by Chaos Dwarves and raised by Chaos Dwarves, so he becomes a kind of a, uh, a, a, a half demon Chaos Dwarf trained master smith, who then goes back to well, claim his inheritance, sort of thing on a dragon. <laughs> oh, I think that dragon model exists, but I don't. Yes, that is not that. That does not. That story does not exist in that book. Um, yeah, not as it's so. written. It, yeah. was, it was too radical. It was too radical for. Them. And then they go and do something more radical, but less evocative. Mm. You know, less characterful. Yeah, the the notion was that um, uh, you know, Carl uh, Carl Franz in his in his dotage, um, kind of kind of remarries a uh, uh, almost like a country country girl. Mm-hmm. Who he becomes infatuated with, who is really a a, a, a demon of Slanesh in in a kind of succubus role, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, it, it, it all becomes quite um, uh, and they and they hush this up. So the, the the secret at the heart of the empire is that they have, that the emperors are, or the 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 heir to the empire is half de- half demon monster, but no one else knows this. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's uh, amazing. Know, yeah, no, that. Oh, yeah, what well, it, it was. That that's kind of, that's that was, that was what I, I kind of started. That, and as I say, I worked through that um, project quite, um, quite thoroughly. 
And in the end, I think it all got binned. And uh, as I say, the models repurposed. So the models would exist. So Tamakon on the Toad Dragon exists. But yes, the backstory for him, I don't know whether it does or not. In, in, his, in his original background, he's a, he's a champion of Nurgle. Yes. In his original background, he's called Tamakon the Defiler. Um, uh, the, sorry, uh, Tamakon the Befowler. <laughs> Um, hmm. which, which I think Games Workshop took offence at. <laughs> um, and his, his, his chaos power is, is literally befoulment. So he, he, bur- he bursts upon the Empire and bathes in the River Reich. And as he bathes in the River Reich, the River Reich turns into an open sewer. And from this sewer, this great flurry, this great flurry of Surrey, this, oh, this crap river goes right to the sea. And, also, and from this foulness emerges all these creatures of, of, of Nurgle. Um, uh, and and one, of the, one of the backstories comes from the point of view of Marienburg, the city of Marienburg, so, mm-hmm. you know, which is, lies at the head of the Reich. Um, so you get this story of how Reich, is, it becomes flooded in sewage. And from the sewage emerge all these demons and everything. Hence yeah, the giant mutated toads and the trolls and the ogres that all are mutated yeah. and yeah. And, and, and there's like a, a toad-like creature. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but um, yep. it's, it, that emerges from these so like a toad demon. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's all, it's all, it all fitted in with that. Uh, and I, I thought I was quite proud of it. I thought it was um, one, of the, one of the best things I'd done for a long time. But it really, you know, I couldn't get anyone on board with the notion of changing the Warhammer world. Um, so, so, so the you basically got flushed, and um, so, as I say, someone else. I think it was Alan Bly, who was quite a good writer. Mm. Um, rewrote it uh, very quickly. I have to give him his credit. Mm. Um, around the models uh, and as i say i haven't looked at it because i can't bring myself to do it but uh, mm. uh, 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 uh and and that opportunity was lost so when i look at the change to the warhammer world i kind of feel that mm-hmm. <laughs> if you see what i mean i do uh, yeah it, it reminds me of that that's why i don't want to I, I just don't bother to turn you back on it mm-hmm well, let's um, let's take a strong uh, step away from um, possibly sadder, older times um, and what could have been into what you've created now and what we've gone into. Um, and I know that you've said previously that you've created Warlords of Erewhon specifically so that you could play with the toys in your cupboard. Um, but maybe since, I mean, you talked about it a bit on the Warlord cast, but maybe talk about it here a little bit as well as to the idea of a fantasy game that has no background, that is miniature agnostic, that works for anything. Um, yeah. T- talk to talk well, us through that process, right? Because I know well, you again, had a lot to say adver- before. Um, yeah, sure. Well, again, it, it, it's... To some extent, it's an expression of that same idea we were talking about before. You know, of a hobby rather than a something commercial. Mm. Because um, uh, I, I, I do have lots of um, assorted toy soldiers, and I, I think as well uh, that way in which I've played fantasy games, it's all my life really. Um, has always been diverted into something commercial. And as soon as it becomes something strongly commercial, you're constrained very strongly by what uh, by the models. Yes. And I wanted to do something where I wasn't constrained and where the 
fact that there's so many models available these days of such quality, exactly. you can just take advantage of it. Yeah, as well as old stuff. I was going to say, and then there's the stuff that's already in your cupboard that uh, Old Hammer comes out to play, which, you know, some of those models, Warlords has really given me the opportunity to pull out, literally, as I think I mentioned before, an ogre that was one of my first ever models, God, 25, 30 years old, um, that I painted maybe 10 years ago and got played in one event as the unit filler in (laughs) fantasy, you know, in a fantasy tournament. And then has been sitting in a case ever since and is probably one of the best painted models that I've ever actually sat down to paint, really took my time and really enjoyed painting it. And then it has now appeared in almost every game of Warlords of Era 1 I've played because I can field it. Yeah, of course. Um, and, that, and, and and to me, that that that's a... It was kind of like an interesting project. Warlord originally didn't want to publish it, probably for that reason. Again... Mm. Uh, as you as you know, and I appreciate your work for Warlord, as, as do I uh, now and again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Warlord are very much driven by their scheduling, and they didn't want to publish a fantasy war game until they were ready to do it. I mm-hmm. figured by the time they were ready to do it, I'd be dead. <laughs> so I thought, you know, let's just, just get, let's get on, just, just do something and do it for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it came to publishing it, I talked to various companies about it because they were interested. Uh, or and considered doing it myself, as I've suggested. Mm. I wasn't mad keen. Considered doing it as a, just a purely online thing. Um, in fact, in fact, I set I set it to be an online thing. I did, I did it in uh, you know uh, I, 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 I've got some competence with um, Adobe InDesign, uh, not not hugely, mm. but enough to do an online publication. Mm. Um, and then Warlord sort of stepped up and said, yeah, "Well, no, if you're going to publish it, we'd like to do it." So. Um, uh, so all credit to them. You know, they took it on as a purely as a publishing project for themselves, and found room. They squeezed it into a, their schedule, um, uh, which they didn't have to do. So uh, you know, you, you know, thanks to Warlord for doing that, and mm. uh, especially to John, because I think he he sort of saw it as a um, to some extent it's a favor. It's a favor that John did for me. Um, uh, but um, the, the idea of it not having a background comes from that. You know, it stems from it not being a commercial product. Well. Uh, that's enabled Warlord to publish it as a book without worrying about having to support it. Uh, and, and that was one of the things I, I, I agreed. I said, well, it's very kind of you to publish it, but I don't expect you to uh, support it in the way you're supporting uh, Bolt Action, mm. which is um, uh, you know, a majorly important game to Warlord, and um, uh, that needs to be commercially successful in order to pay the wage bill and the rent, mm-hmm. uh, which... Um, is important. <laughs> Absolutely. So that, that's kind of why everyone's got no background. It's because it's got every background. Exactly. Um, I wanted to be able to go back and play games of the Lord of the Rings with it. Now, I haven't said that explicitly because I can't, because Games Workshop own the rights to the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, um, you know, there's a Facebook group of um, Middle Earth War gamers who use all sorts of things to play Middle Earth War games, but they're not trying, they don't have, a, they're not selling a book. So, although I would say that, you know, Erewhon's fantastic for playing Lord of the Rings, it is. It's also fantastic for playing games based on either Michael Moore um, fantasy mm-hmm. environments um, or, or, uh, or or any uh, uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, any, in fact, any kind of medievalized fantasy environment or, or, um, uh, or, even, or even slightly science fiction works just fine with uh, Wars of Erewhon because it's a generic system. Um, but I can't at the same time fill books or even my web 
page with pictures of of those things. Right. People can. Yeah. If that's what they want to do, because they're hobbyists. But for me to do it would be um, it would be kind of what do you call it? It's not necessarily passing off, but it it's conflating someone else's intellectual property with your own intellectual property for commercial gain. Now, now the fact that there's almost no commercial gain involved from my point of view is neither here nor there because I, I wrote right. the book and I get a royalty from it. So I can't promote the book using other people's um, IP. And that's why I tend to use pictures of old miniatures mm-hmm. uh, or, or of people who have given me permission to use their um, uh, uh, the miniatures. Uh, uh, I quite like the old ones. You know, it, it means you can go and uh, you, can, you can you can drag things out of uh, the mm-hmm. cupboard and like your your ogre friend. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And he is yeah. a friend, and it's nice to have those models that come back into your life that you know remind you of another time. Um, just thinking of what you were saying just then, I, I was I was drawn. My mind went back to conversations that were had on many podcasts and online when um, Age of Sigmar came out, and a lot of people were talking about jumping ship to play rank-and-flank games in other places. And there was the discussion that the Ninth Age is the new Warhammer Fantasy edition. It's the the fan-based, let's continue this, yes. let's continue Warhammer. And then there was Kings of War that went off another direction. And Age of Sigmar, yes. of course, and all these other places. But people were saying that, you know, some of these games just could not survive because they did not have... A background. They did not have a fluff to hook players, and it wasn't till I saw. And I, largely, I'll admit, I saw wisdom in those words, and I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I see that." But it wasn't till I actually saw your rules that it that it, it clicked that you can create your own narrative. Um, I've been playing the guy who I play with most regularly, uh, my good friend Dave. Um, we play a variety of games. Um, most commonly, we've been playing Warlords of Erewhon and 7TV, both of which are sort of miniature agnostic games. I mean, Crooked Dice does make their own models, but they say you can use almost anything. And in that, you have the freedom to create your own narratives, to create your own stories, to, you know, to, to make the game fun in your own way. And we're just having a blast coming up with weird combinations, throwing them down, um, you know, creating the narrative on the spot and having a fun game. And it sounds a lot like what you've been doing with the Perrys, for example. Um, yeah. And I think yeah. Warlords is perfect for that. Um, and yeah, I, I, the genius in the army list writing, and I know you say you're not necessarily a big fan of using point values in your games, but the army lists themselves are more than point lists. They, they're sort of all-encompassing, and I think the genius of the way, what, what really got me excited about the game, besides the way it plays, um, was how adaptive the lists were, and it was designed to fit a variety of canvases that you're able to then paint upon, if that makes sense. Um, so my hat off to you, sir. That uh, that was um, it was just the genius of the system to me is just how inclusive it is to how many different army ideas and models that we already have as gamers. Uh, yeah, well, I, but it was designed around that, wasn't it? So um, mm. uh, it, it, and it's a very very flexible system. I mean, to me, the army lists are essentially points of value, not. not 
not points value as much as stat values. Right. Let's get it right. Uh, so you know, you're going to play a game. You need to have the stats, and to some extent, you need to know what pe- uh, individuals are armed with, or, or what spells they have, or that sort of thing. Um, and you know, I couldn't necessarily play a game without an army list in my hand. Um, I think there are you know, they are useful things to have, but um, uh, I, I just don't worry about the, the the points value element of it because um, most of the games I'm playing. The points value has become irrelevant, if you see what I mean. Mm. Uh, you know, the, there'd be an objective where a, a hero or a character has to do a certain thing or achieve something. And any troops can be sacrificed in order to do that. But if that character is um, uh, slain, the, the game's over. So it becomes a, uh, a, your objective becomes very specific and the troops you need to achieve it become specific and no amount of points values will actually give them an actual value in terms of that game scenario. Uh, yeah, but, you know, yeah, thank you very much. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased they work for you. They definitely do. And I, so I play a lot of games these days and some of the games that I play um, are very, like 7TV, for example, which I mentioned before, you have a card for each unit or a card for a model and it gives you the stats for that model or that, that unit um, and has the, the points value for it on it. So when you're playing, you can just set out the cards on the edge of the board for the units that you're playing and you don't have to flip through a book. Um, sure. And, you know, having played games for a number of years where you have, you know, these great big books that you're flipping through, um, it can sometimes be um, cumbersome. Um, but I thought that the way that you've done the list for Warlords was genius in that you have each list is its own entity, which then you can download and print from your website, which is it's sort of its own inclusive it's got its own little write-up at the beginning, sort of explaining some of your thoughts. Then it you know, goes from the characters to the units to maybe artillery or monsters. Then you have the stats for everything that appears in that army list. Nothing else. Just the stuff you would need if you played that list. And then you get a list yeah. of the special rules that apply to every model in that list. So yeah. you don't have well, to go flipping cause... through books. It's great. No, no, of course. Well, because that's what we were doing. We, uh, we, and somebody, for example, would 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 say, "Oh, can I bring my dwarfs?" And I go, "Yeah, sure, you bring your dwarfs." And I thought, "Well, he's going to play Erewhon. He's he might not have played Erewhon before. You know, the first time he played, he brought his dwarfs, and um, he's going to need all these stats. So, mm. I, I, so the the army lists are there specifically for for that reason. You know, they're there to be played with. They're not um, they're not abstract, and that's that's why I set them in that way. So they're um, uh, quite dense, uh, few pages as possible, and as little illustra- there's no illustration on mine. Um, they, when Warlord did their production on them, they they, they tended to expand mm-hmm. because they wanted something that's fa- a bit fancier. But um, to my, my mind, that's not necessary. If you you know as a player, you want something you can print out quickly. Um, and to some extent, throw away. Uh, the idea of using cards for unit um, stats is something we did with Warhammer years, years in the 90s, in mm-hmm. fact. We, we printed a whole series of blank cards for people to fill in. Uh, file, you know, file cards. That's right. And, uh, and, and I, uh, my main army was a goblin army, uh, which uh, you, you, you can imagine. Yes. And uh, I basically had a file card for every unit, including the... Uh, any magic items it would have had or, you know, uh, the leader's number and so on. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and when I when I played a game, I did it exactly what you've described. I, mean, I basically would go through the file, pick out the units I wanted to play with, um, and they would give me all the details. Um, what I'd often do, just because I found it more convenient, was then copy out the course stats and details onto a, a list. Just so I've got one page mm-hmm. that's got everything on it. Uh, I can never remember stats. I'm shocking. Yeah. Yeah. I remember certain things, but um, uh, my problem with the cards is, and God, I must be getting old because trying to read tiny cards with tiny print, because some models have quite a few rules um, that interact. It's sometimes, you know, there's just a lot to look at and to read. And that was my problem with game systems like Malifaux, beautiful game system. I love it to death. But the, so many words on such little cards and the cards are all of course standard size. Um, but yeah. I, I really like having just, you know, a small pamphlet that I can open up, flip to the page I need. Everything's the right size so that my, I can see it. Um, and I can leave books open to the page and then just flip it to the back if I need the stats for the weapons or, you know, need to remember what the uh, the strength bonus for a particular weapon is. Boom, it's right there. So, yeah, it's 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 a great way of doing it. Um, it's sort of a meeting of uh, old school and new school in one uh, in one format that I think works really well. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I I wasn't thinking consciously in those terms. Um, the um, I don't know if you uh, uh, remember, but I did a game with Lucy Dye uh, called um, the uh, Red Book of the Elf King. That's right. And that yeah, uh, which which actually I was doing. Uh, did I do that after Erewhon or before? I think I did that after Erewhon. It came out before, but I uh, uh, I actually wrote that after Erewhon um, because Lucy and I were one of the companies that was interested in publishing Erewhon. Oh. Um, uh, but um, but I said, well, I can't really do that, but uh, I I can um, uh, have a you know I work with them on the uh, Lucy uh, on their own uh, game, and in fact I'm working with them on the moment on a, a rewrite of their Savage uh, Core game. Are you? That looks like mm. a great game. It's an interesting game. I mean, I'm mm. not I'm not doing any mechanical work for them i'm just doing a write-up um because the uh, uh the, the current book is a little bit all over the place it's quite hard to find the rules mm. so um so, so i'm not really doing much for them it's just a bit of a uh, uh well I, I do things with steve and, and joe and they're, they're really they're really great guys mm. they're, they're the opposite of warlord in a warlord plan everything and it takes forever to do anything um with lucid eye guys you turn up in the morning and they've uh, and, and uh, they offer you a coffee and show you the, the 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 ten latest models they've made for a completely new theme that they hadn't thought of last time you saw them <laughs> a week previously. Yes. you know it's like they're, they're absolutely on point and do things very rapidly, uh, which I enjoy. I, I think um, momentum is a important thing with um, uh, projects uh, of mm. any kind, but. Um, You've got to get really an enthusiasm for something, and then you've got to work it whilst you've got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very, it's, got, it's very rock and roll, you know. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, it's 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 you know maintaining, as you say, that momentum to make sure that things get done. Because you know, if if I if I don't do things at work right away, they don't get done. Um, a million it takes other. It doesn't it? Well, as a primary school teacher, um, there's usually 20-some-odd sets of eyes looking at you and voices calling your name um, at any given moment. And so if I don't do it immediately, um, 
things more important will invariably come up in the next five minutes. Um, and I'm sure everyone's day job is like that. So um, just from my own experience, though, um, momentum is literally everything. And if I don't get things done, they just don't get done because other things come up. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's the same with a, with a hobby, isn't it? Mm. You know, it's, um, I, I know sometimes um, I'm painting a model and I'll get halfway through and something else will divert me, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe meet me in real life. Um, and it's so hard to get back to something. It is. Uh, you know, once, it's had a, once you've had a break, it's very hard to get back to something. Uh, and I find it the same with get with these projects. It's one of the reasons why um, working with Warlord is, is sometimes um, a little bit uh, demanding because you'll write a game, it'll sit on a shelf at Warlord for a year, and then it'll go into production. Yeah. So, and that didn't happen with Era One. I, I insisted it be done quicker, um, but um, it only took six or seven months. Uh, but um, but normally a year, two years even. Uh, and by the time you get back to it, you've you've lost your mojo. Mm-hmm. You're onto something else. Um, uh, and uh, it's quite it's quite hard. Well, let's talk about the mojo you have for Era One then, because I know. Uh, quite a few people who will listen to this will want to know um, what you sure. what sort of where where you've been with it and where you're going with it, um, given that it is you. Um, now, as you said, or as I said, uh, you've updated all the army lists recently. Um, everything's been FAQ'd and brought up in line, and you've started releasing new armies. Uh, is that a trend that you're looking to continue? Um I mean, two yeah. armies in one week is a is a big jump. I mean, clearly we're not expecting well, that. But well, one one of them one of them I did for Warlord, the the, the samurai one. Mm. So obviously I didn't do it in the last week. I did it like months ago, right? Uh, and they've been sat on it. And and I've I've just been waiting until they released it until I could release it. Well, they kept putting back the date of their. They're going to do a relaunch on samurai, but they keep putting back the date for when they're going to relaunch it. So mm. I I said, well, I. I People are expecting this Samurai Warband list. How about we both agree a date when we can put the list up and uh, and put it up? And we did that. Um, and again, it's very kind of them, really. I didn't have to do that. Mm. Uh, but otherwise, it would have been sat there waiting forever. But I did that quite a while ago. The Snake Man list, I really did because um, uh, Nick Ayer asked, uh, asked me to um, uh, have a go. Uh, uh, and specifically, as something to put in War Games Illustrated. Mm. And I thought that was a good opportunity to get uh, Era One into the face of people who play, uh, who buy War Games Illustrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, it, it also happened to be the case that I'd already started a, um, a lizard man amphibian slan style list. Mm-hmm. You know, a South, a, a kind of South American jungle inspired reptilian list. So I'd already half done it, um, uh, and. Uh, uh, all I all I did really was I I kind of checked through the things that um, were specific to the um, uh, Ghost Archipelago background, and mm-hmm. I added those in. Um, but um, really, the core of it is the same as my Lizardman list, and that that's probably the list I'll do next. It's, it's a more general Lizardman list. And that was my uh, next question: is and with yeah. all the lists that you've been oh, so you're talking about coming out with a different lizard man yeah. list oh. well for example the one that i've done the snake man list mm. has got no cavalry in it well of course yeah lizard man riding small dinosaur like creatures is a trope isn't it mm-hmm. uh, 
Uh, I mean, it existed in the Warhammer world, and it will probably exist in other worlds, and it's uh, just a, it's a fairly classy thing to go for. So I will, I, obviously, I'll incorporate that, um, uh, and and so on. You know, there are things that the um, uh, the the, the Nick Airs, uh range, the, the the one they do for um, it's it's a Frostgrave supplement, in fact. That's right. The one they do for Frostgrave is is quite specific to Frostgrave. So that a lot of the models really they they only have specific uh, use in that Frostgrave game, mm-hmm. um, which is fine, and they're not they're nice models. The um, the plastics are uh, I'm putting a few together at the moment, and they they're quite nice to do. Um, you have to kind of they suffer a little bit from the um, from from the draw line sometimes being a little mm. bit ambiguous, and you always get that with things that are like scaly. <laughs> Uh, yes because you can't carry the scales around can you nope it's um yep so uh, there, are, there are a few bits where you go well is that supposed to be scaly or is that supposed to be something else you have to kind of make a decision the uh the models are painted on the box are really nicely painted and you can see where they've done that um but you know they're they're, they're nice models I, I would prefer a few more shields they're square shields as well, and I'm looking at thinking that's a lost opportunity. <laughs> Lizardman should have, you know, they should have scaly shields, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like a turtle shell or something like that. Uh, but I'm, there you go. I'm pretty sure those exist somewhere out there, Rick. I'm sure you could find some somewhere. I've seen, I've seen some turtle shell type shields on mm-hmm. some. If there's any manufacturer listening, turtle turtle shields that's what we need. Or, or scales. In fact, I think some of the ones that they painted look as if they've been painted to represent scales. But uh, you know, you need something that's more of a an appropriate shape, don't you? Yes. Well, given mm. uh, the world of three D printing, I'd imagine that someone could whip something up like a shield pretty quickly. Do you know it's getting to the point, isn't it, where you really can do things like that? And um, mm-hmm. a friend of mine, Nick uh, Nick Simerson, who's hel- who helped me a lot with uh, the uh, the Arrow One project, and uh, uh, he's, uh, he's always, he's always fun to play. He, he, um, he, he printed me out, um, a wizard's tower. I think it's supposed to be a ruined white lighthouse, to be honest, but it's a fan, it's like a fantasy ruined tower. Mm-hmm. Uh, he printed me out, uh, that's on his three, 3d printer. And it's just a little home printer he's got. And it's really nice. Yes. Really good piece. Um, yeah. you know, I mean, you, you can still, you can see the build lines to some extent. Mm-hmm. But for terrain, you know, that's not a big deal. It's not. And when you start getting into resin printers, those lines disappear. Yeah. And it's astonishing yeah. the things you well, can get. Well, because Warlord have a couple of really good resin printers at, at work. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, th- those are used to produce masters. So, you know, they're as good as a, a, a conventional master. They yeah. are. It is, it is, and not that expensive either. No. You know. Years, years ago, you were into forty, fifty, sixty thousand pounds at a time. That's right for these things. Now, a couple of grand. You might need an upgrade that's as much again, but you know, it's sub ten thousand pounds. Uh, or there's it's, it's, people who have them and they charge you to print on them. And yeah. um, I recently uh, spoke to my fine friend in the states who does all my printing, and I got several. Um, you know, classic Battletech models because I've been looking at that game again because they reissued it for $5 each. I got models you can't get anywhere else um, in resin that are just as good. And I had a 156 scale um, G.I. Joe 
base that I had, the toy I had as a kid made so I can play bolt action on it. Um, oh, okay. And to get that toy, which was desktop size, you know, for Christmas yeah. one year was, was, you know, the joy of my life for quite a while. And to be able to get that, you know, in 156 scale sent to me for maybe $25 US um, is astonishing. And yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's just the world we're in, and it's changing yeah. you every day. Yeah, and um, you know it's um, it's all to the good, isn't it? It's it is. uh, something to be embraced, I think. That creativity's you know coming out more and more and more every day. So uh, where where it all ends up, Rick? Who knows? In fact, my um, my wife rather rather astonishingly uh, asked me if I wanted a three D printer for my birthday. Hey. Uh, yeah, which I thought, wow, top woman. Yes, <laughs> but um, I, I said, well, it, 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 well, it's a very nice thought, but let's. Uh, it, I, I wasn't quite. I didn't feel ready for uh, for taking that leap. It's not the it's not the 3D printing so much as the fact you have to be a little bit technically savvy to do it. And I, yes, I'd, I'd sooner have a look at someone else's first. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this, up to it. at this point in my life, I'm much happier recording audio podcasts and paying someone else to print my models. Well, exactly. It's uh, uh, and, and I'm not a sculptor, so I'd be buying in designs. So. Yeah. Well, I say I'm not a sculptor. I, I'm not. I couldn't do it on three D sculpting. Yeah. Well, Rick, um, I I know I'm gonna get yelled at if I don't ask what's next for Erewhon because I know you mentioned you're gonna maybe add some things to the lizard man list or update it. There were rumblings of a of a rat man list at one point. Um, Anything that you can share, or um, are we keeping the curtain slightly closed as you uh, put your finishing touches on things? Uh, I haven't quite made my mind up. The um, uh, I need to I need to finish off the lizard man list uh, properly, mm. so that will be next. Um, uh, but then um, uh, the next one I've got on the um, uh, on the pile is uh, is revisiting the rat man idea. Um, but but as I don't have a rat man on. Me and I don't know anyone who does. It, I'm a little bit wary of um, sort of committing to it because I don't like doing stuff totally in abstract. Mm-hmm. I'll, have to, I'll have to play. Uh, I, suppose, I mean, I could substitute. You know, like anyone else, I can just use those goblins. They're rats, you know. Yes, exactly. I, I can play they're ratty goblins. Yeah. Yes, they're ratty goblins. But I think you lose a little bit. You lose a connectivity. You lose a bit of character when you do that. I'd mm. sooner find someone who's um, uh, who's willing to play along. But we'll see. Um, so I was going to do that one next. Um, and then I've got a few kind of uh, things I'd quite like to just put up, including um, – when I have the points calculator, for example, and people seem obsessed by the points. I think it's because they're trying to play Warhammer yes. um, and head-to-head games. And I have to say, Erewhon's not really designed to play competitive head-to-head games. He can do, and it works. But to me, half the joy is having a um, you know a scenario and an objective. Mm-hmm. Um but not everyone feels that way. So um, uh, plainly, they, they, they want that. Uh, uh, and I think, um, yeah, so, so Ratman was fairly obvious, but a uh, points value calculator will at least give people the opportunity to um, think of themselves and feel a bit more confident. Um, what they'll do is they'll discover that the points value cal- calculator doesn't quite work, of course, because you get you get to elements of the game where it breaks down a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so my calculator tends to have notes in that say if this then that. There's a lot of that. You, you can't Excel spreadsheet it. No. Um, which um, people tend to look for. Um, 
so uh, so I'll, I'll perhaps do that and tidy as I say tidy it up first. Oh. Uh, but uh, uh, I'll do that. And the other thing I'd, I'd like quite like to do is, is just a guide. You know, because I thought it was obvious, but um, perhaps it's not. Um, you know, this is a base stat line for a human. If you want something to be tougher, do this. If you want it to be stronger, do that. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you know, that, that might be a useful kind of document to do. Because uh, I say it seems fairly obvious to me, but um, uh, perhaps not to other people. Um, and then I was going to put up my um, uh, play. Uh, I, I have a basic play sheet uh, and uh, various things like that, which um, uh, are not the Warlord versions. Yeah. Uh, which which I, I was going to put up. I, I mean, they're at the, the Warlord versions are basically based on mine, mm -hmm. but they're um, they're in a slightly simpler format. So the ones I use, uh, and, you know, things like that I can do quite easily. Um, and um, uh, other than that, in, in terms of army lists, you know, what things to do. I mean, uh, the, the Ratman's the obvious. After that, I mean, the world's your oyster, really. I'm not sure if there's it anything is. particularly. Uh, I mean, I've covered all the things that I have a personal connection to and enthusiasm for. Mm -hmm. But you can take any of those things and do do more detailed lists that make them a more specific thing. Exactly. In terms of your imagined background or a specific background. But what I can't do is take my list and turn it into an empire list for Warhammer. No. It, anyone else can do that, but I can't. And I can't put it up. No. Um, so, you know, when people ask me, is there going to be such and such a list? Often what they're asking me, is, is there going to be a a Warhammer Chaos Dwarf list? Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm thinking, well, Warhammer Chaos Dwarves are a very specific thing. You know, that you, you, you can't put them into a generic context. No. Uh, so, so, so I'm not sure I can really do things like that. Um, demons is the other one people have asked for, and I would want to do a demon list at some point. I do have demon armies too, so mm -hmm. or demon forces. So that's something I can certainly do. But I think what they're really looking for again is a Warhammer Chaos list with the classic Warhammer qualities to it, and I'm not sure I'm comfortable doing that. Yeah. Well, you know, as I, I, as a guy who I'm putting up my hand here, who literally started one of the long demon threads on the arrow on Facebook page by saying, Hey Rick right. is a demon list coming. Um, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. I, I am that guy. Sorry, Rick. Um, you're actually talking to one of those people. Um, I have, um, but that's because I have four figure cases filled with demon models that I would love to use. Um, one of those is a, an army of floating eyeballs that I sculpted when I was, you know, whacked out on no, uh, on no sleep and jet lag um, on a whirlwind trip. Uh, yeah, no, I was back to the States uh, for a wedding and I just hadn't slept in a week. And so I bought a lot of sculpting putty and sat in a lot of airports and sculpted floating eyeballs that I then painted when I got home. And uh, yeah, look, it's as well, we generic as it gets. Up. What? If you don't mind me plundering your IP. Please. <laughs> Plunder away. I'll send Although, you pictures of the models and what I've used them for. There we go. Done. Yeah, well, uh, the, uh, I think Ernie Baker did a game which um, has some has some similarities to Erewhon, mm. uh, which he called Fantaside. Oh, uh, yes. Which I think, yeah, I think that had a sort of floating eyeball kind of uh, thing going on. It sort of had a, it had, it had eyeball on. 
uh, it'll come back to me. I'll have to check that out. Uh, I thought that? no, I I've heard of it, but I didn't realize there was a, an eyeball thing. It wasn't until years later that somebody pointed out that um, the obvious beholder D and D similarity. Um, but yeah, I hadn't. When I thought of it, I don't know why I thought of it. I don't know where it came from. Floating eyeballs, but it was a thing. Um, and they're all, <laughs> yeah, they're weird. Well, we'll have to do. I'll do. I'll do your fly, flying eyeball list if you like. <laughs> Oh, Rick, you just made my life. That is amazing. Yes, please do that. It might that... be quite short. Are they different sizes? Do you have small yes, ones and big ones? I do. Yeah, okay. Yes, and then there's flying do tongues. Do you have eyeball swarms? This is getting you quite a big list already, isn't it? Yeah. All the heroic eyeballs. There is. Um, there's a giant heroic eyeball, um, and there are giant chompy Pac-Man heads, and there are flying tongues. So, yes, there it, it gets very weird very quickly, and there's a Yes, there's a a chariot of tongues be pulling a giant flying eyeball. Um, it's bizarre. Yes, I don't know why or where. I'll send you pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, please do. I'm not sure there's many people who will find much use in this list other than yourself. <laughs> yes. You could start a trend. <laughs> well, um, okay. I am going to stop talking about myself and get back to you in a sec. But I, I got to – so years later – um, I, I'd put pictures of this list up on the internet and, um, there used to be an internet forum called Warseer, um, in the, it was, yeah, it was a British. Yeah. So I went on Warseer and there was a, cause I often used it as, um, demons of Zinch way back when, um, even though it wasn't, uh, and somebody said, I saw pictures of this army online and it, it got me going and I really wanted to do it. So I made it and he made my army, um, and he right. and he did it better. It, to be fair, it was a thousand times better. But it was literally the same models. He had sculpted them his own way, um, and it was one of the first things I'd ever sculpted. And so it was very, very basic. But he had added um, just that next level of detail. And I messaged him and said, "Hey, that army looks familiar." And he went, "Oh my God, you're the guy! Um, can you tell? Can you? Can I see pictures of your army again?" And, um, so, cause he'd seen it somewhere and had, you know, it had gotten to be in his bonnet and, um, he was almost, you know, perfectly identical unit for unit for what his representations were. Um, but he was like, oh, you inspired me for that. And I was like, I don't know why this is inspiring, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody liked well, it's it. Nice though, isn't it. There's that one guy who liked that army. Uh, well, it's yeah. good news cause you've, you've doubled the potential audience for the, uh, the army list. That's right. <laughs> Uh, and he's in Europe, and I'm in Australia, so you know, twice as many uh, you know groups of people are seeing him now. But yeah, anyway, um, but you know, a good uh, generic list or a game like Erewhon, where you would get a list that would be inclusive um, of different yeah. types of demons, for example, would be perfect for that army. I think what I have to do is come up with a good demon meta, you know, something that makes demons demons, and not mm -hmm. just troops. So undead have that. They do. But it needs to be something similar, mm -hmm. and there are various things that could that could uh, uh, you could do. For example, you could make them um, collective uh, wizards. You know, you could make groups of demons function as uh, uh, spellcasters, mm. which might be quite entertaining. Yeah, and the, the other thing, the other things with demons is you can sort of go well immune to normal weapons. You go well, that's not a game, is it? No, <laughs> you, know, you, you need you need to. Be, be wary of of that kind of stuff mm -hmm. so um uh it, 
they tend to end up being very magic-y because of what yeah. they are. It's true. Uh, uh, yeah, and and an Air One isn't a magic-y game, really. No. Um, so so there is that, but um, yeah, I, I did. Uh, uh, yeah, I did think of um, something along those lines. It, 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 it's one of those things where I, I think a, a generic list, vaguely based on um, a kind of Christian mythology or um, uh, a, you know, the concept of demons, mm-hmm. uh, in a broad sense, um, would uh, would be the best start. Um, for it, yeah. uh, so that people who've got specifically, um, let's say, plague demons, you know, Nurgle-esque demons, that's quite a common demon trope, really. It is. That's not a. You can get away with that um, as a as a, as a kind of, you know, four horsemen of the apocalypse sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so uh, uh, yeah, there's an element of that. I think someone, it might even have been yourself, suggested something based on the, uh, the on Dante and the uh, circles of hell. That was in the same thread, but that was not me. But I went, ooh, okay. that is a great idea. Yeah, I looked them all up and I thought, well, they're interesting. They're not, but they tend to be rather moral. Right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, so uh, I'm not too sure uh, that uh, kind of works. But um, It depends on how much on the high horse you want to get there, Rick. I mean, you can make yeah. this, this Erewhon could be your morality play. It could be you're putting the stamp on gaming forever, morals in gaming. Yeah, that's true. Well, I think one, uh, the one I, th- I found, uh, found was the most interesting was the circle reserved for people committed fraud. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a completely fraud, a fraudulent demon army. You're allowed to cheat, so you can choose your points value to, um, uh, to you just actually just sneak in some extra points. And as long as no one finds out, you can get away with it. Yeah. And if they do find out, you claim your fraud, you, you play your fraud spell. Yes. Oh, there That is a mechanic in a game somewhere is... Oh, I can't think of the game system now, but it was um, you can. Che- oh, it was Blood Bowl. You can cheat unless you're caught. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cheat unless you're caught. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to play that with. Um, you wouldn't remember, probably, because it was a very British thing. There was a game called Cold Dits, which Osprey have just re-released actually in the last few years. Oh, have they? Nice. Yeah, but uh, uh, but the original game was seventies, nineteen seventies, based on a TV program. Itself based on or inspired by the. Um, Prisoners escaping from Colditz Castle during World War Two. Oh wow! And uh, in that game, I, I don't know if you played it. I but, did not uh, know. One player is the German. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, he, and his role is to stop people escaping, and all the other players represent the British or German or uh, uh, sorry, British or French or mm-hmm. Dutch or American uh, prisoners of war, and their objective is to escape, and the person to get the most people out first wins. Mm-hmm. But the poor old German player. Of course, he just gets picked upon endlessly. Yes. And the minute the German player leaves the room to go to the toilet, everyone starts looking through his cards and cheating, yeah. and taking extra pieces. You know, so you can't. So the rule is that the German player, actually, you can cheat, but if the German player finds you cheating, you have to fess up. <laughs> supposedly. That's amazing. Yes, that's quite sound... fraught. If you're the German player, it's quite fraught. <laughs> Well, I there was um, Axis and Allies did a variety of versions of their games over the years, and one of them was I think Axis and Allies Europe, yeah. and um, of course it's everyone versus the Germans, and uh, yes, that that does not make for uh, how do they say uh, feel goodsies? Uh, it leads to a lot of feel badsies, and usually a fight on the front lawn after uh, a couple of hours of playing that game. Because, uh, yeah, nobody's having fun. Well, at least the German player isn't having fun. Um, 
in the latter half of that game, which I suppose is uh, historically accurate. But yeah, but it's historically accurate. I'll give you that. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but uh, but as you say, you have to have a certain mentality to be able to play that uh, that role. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because I think in the original Cold there was no way the German player could actually win. Um, it was one of those uh, things where you played until a, a, a one of the Allied player wins. But I think in the new version, they've put a timer on it. Uh, so if you don't get out within a certain time, the German player wins. Yeah. Nice. So somebody actually can win now, other than, uh, so it's not like Monopoly, where no one wins, ever. <laughs> no one wins ever. That's right. It just goes on and on forever. Oh. It's funny, isn't it? I, I mean, uh, I've played, played Monopoly as a kid, obviously, but uh, the appeal is quite... Um, Hard to see. Yeah. It's a, quite a tricky game. My wife gave me Monopoly for Christmas. Uh, I think the first Christmas we were together. Um, you know, we are, I don't even think I was engaged at that point. You know, we, we were just boyfriend and girlfriend. And she gave me um, our first date movie was The Avengers. So she gave me The Avengers Monopoly. And um, she's like, oh, yeah, we can play. And I went, yeah, no. no. Uh, and so it's still on the shelf, still in this shrink wrap, have not pulled it out. And for years, she was like, oh, you, I bought you Monopoly and we never played. And, and then recently, um, a mutual friend invited us over for a group Monopoly session. And we all sat down and played Star Wars Monopoly. And we walked out. And the first thing my wife said to me was, that's why you wouldn't play Monopoly with me. And I went, yep, no fun. <laughs> and I love you too much to, uh, yeah, no, no, no. Monopoly on you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Do yeah. you know, I have a few Monopolies. Uh, I think I've got a, um, a Catopoly somewhere. Oh, do you? Monopoly with cats. <laughs> and um, there's a few other people, or Lindsay's bought me for the, over the year, or I've bought her maybe, mm-hmm. uh, just, just because the theme's interesting. But I don't think we've played any of them. Yeah. yeah. Not if you, uh, not if you love the people who you are around. Yes, no, mm, no. Well, Rick, <laughs> I think when we start talking Monopoly, it, it might be time to call it a day um, <laughs> uh, um before yeah, we could, go out right. yeah uh, <laughs> monopoly usually means the end of games uh and usually the end of fun so <laughs> sorry to say that that it's it kids um but before i porky pig and say that's all folks um i know we've talked about your website quite a lot tonight but where can people find it um because it's not immediately google friendly search yet no i set it up not to be um, yeah. I, I, I didn't, um, originally I, I really, I actually developed it well in, in hiding as it were. And then I, uh, uh, then I've, uh, uh, I, I just made it public on the, on the quiet and people mm-hmm. found it before I announced it, which was, uh, <laughs> they always do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's called uh, this gaming life dot UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a, a domain that, um, I, I, I bought cheaply. Um, I do own rickpriestley.com, but sadly the uh, the provider can't uh, easily uh, transfer it to, to me because um, it, the email I gave them was my old work address, my old Games Workshop one. Oh. So um, uh, I'm thinking, oh, curses. Uh, I could, I'll have to just wait for that to uh, come round or something. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, 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 but, but I thought um, I would do that. I think I think uh, Warlord actually got error one. As a uh, as a domain name, so mm. I th- I thought I'd use uh, this gaming life, which is the name of the column I write in um, Wargame Soldiers and Strategy magazine. Of course, WSNS. I thought yeah. I knew that name from somewhere. Yeah, so that uh, thisgaminglife.uk. Yeah. 
that's right, thisgaminglife.uk. Uh, if you, um, uh, yeah, yeah, you should be able to find it fairly easily. Uh, and uh, if you can't, then if you go onto my Facebook page, if you, uh, mm-hmm. if you uh, uh, just type Rick Priestley, you should find that. If you're not, if you don't already uh, know where it is, um, and uh, there's links on that. And look for the picture of the handsome gentleman in the uniform. Yeah, that was something that um, I think one of the Perrys did. Uh, uh, it, that. When we do our campaigns, mm-hmm. I'm, starting off, I'm starting off again now, aren't I? When we do our campaigns, the That's Perrys right. always do little character pieces for every mm-hmm. single participant. So what they'll often do is take a historical picture, usually based on the character that you're actually portraying, mm-hmm. uh, and, and do a head swap and do a bit of Photoshop work on it. That's awesome. And some of them are very good. Yes. And, and, and I used that one. That was me playing um, the role of the French commander during the American War of Independence campaign. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. So there you go. There you go. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as as Rick just said, um, please look uh, look him up on Facebook under Rick Priestley, of course. Um, that's L-E-Y for those um, spelling impaired people like me. Uh, and thisgaminglife.uk. Uh, and if you have not checked out Warlords of Erewhon, that is Warlords with an S, and Erewhon is nowhere spelled backward. Um, if you have not checked backwards. that game out. Backwards. Yes, it's all backwards. Uh, it is fantastic. Um, it is easily one of the games I've played most this year, and I've been playing a lot this year. So it is worth a look. Um, but, Rick, thank you. Uh, as as I said, probably, uh, ad nauseum before we started recording, uh, and I know we've talked many times. Um, it is it is a wonderful opportunity for me to fanboy out um, whenever we talk. And I, I thank you for your patience, as always, and uh, for coming on and just talking shop, because it's been fantastic just uh, chewing the fat and reminiscing and uh, talking gaming in general. Yeah, it's, it's, it, we've blathered. We've blathered and uh, put the world to rights, haven't we, Brad? We have. <laughs> we have the only thing we have left to do is talk about my dog and um you know i think uh, i think that'll be well, give a him a little give him a pat on the head from me i will always uh, do my, always my, do my my dog has gone to sleep in the other room i think he's uh, uh he's uh, he's a bit, a bit warm for him at the moment <laughs> yeah well mine found a, a a cuddly little spot next to where i've been podcasting and has been snuggled up next to my knee cuz uh, unfortunately while you're getting warmer we're getting colder. <laughs> and officially, right, as we start talking about the weather, that is officially the end. Um, <laughs> and uh, as I said, thank you again, Rick, for coming on. Um, and guys, you at home, thank you for listening. Uh, as I've said many times on this podcast and on others, podcasts don't cost anything. But oftentimes, time is more precious than money in some of our lives. And I do appreciate uh, this being a one-man show so to speak, um, you taking the time to listen to Cast Ice today. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, if you have any feedback for the show, be it positive or negative, as always, uh, you can find me on Facebook under Cast Dice. That's C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. If you message the page, uh, I'm the only person who responds because uh, I'm the only person on it. And uh, a guaranteed response as soon as you send it. Um, thank you very much, everyone who's been giving me feedback. We have been... Um, taking on requests, uh, and I do have a few special things coming up in the coming months. Just have to get through report writing season. Mid-year reports, primary school teachers, least favorite thing to do in the world. 
But um, that said, when you are playing the games that Rick writes and that we enjoy playing, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than anything else, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Good night. And that's